0: Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here. So good to see your faces. Thanks for joining us online. Um, We are launching this new series today called What's Everyone Talking About? And, you know, a couple of weeks ago we did a survey and asked everyone what everyone was talking about and um, we're going to jump into that and so we just want to bring some biblical perspective on some things um, and today's topic is politics. Aren't you excited about that? Anybody excited about that? Like you know they say there's two things you don't talk about religion in part, religion and politics and wouldn't you love to be me today? Um, <laughs> but I'm excited about this topic. Um, I just have a lot of confidence about what God's going to do and I really believe I have some truth that um, God, God will use in our hearts to stir our hearts just a little bit and so what we're going to do is jump into to um, the story in just a second about Jesus, and what we 're going to see Jesus is he finds himself in the middle of a political hot conflict, like a red hot conflict, a political conflict about the biggest issue of his day and so what I want to do is kind of talk through that story about Jesus and how he handled his approach, his attitude, and his angle on politics, but also want to deal with what is um, probably the number one political issue of our day. I'll deal with that kind of towards the end. Now, now, now there's two reasons why we jump into that because some people say you shouldn't talk about politics because what ends up happening is you end up alienating half of the people that you're trying to reach. Because as a church, you know, we have a mission to reach people to, that don't know Jesus so that they would know him, to give him, them life and forgiveness of sin and hope. And so what can tend to happen in politics is, you, is like you can tend to feel like you have to alienate half the people. And I just don't think that's true amen right I think that there's two reasons why we would want to uh, engage in this particular topic it's just man we just want to engage to bring hope right we just want to engage this topic in order to bring in order to bring hope like like, I don't know how many of you grew up like I did but do you remember growing up when church was kind of the center of community you remember when travel ball didn't play on Saturday mornings (laughs) you remember when they didn't practice on Wednesday nights why because you had church Now, I'm not saying that we should return to the, quote, good old days. I don't know how good they were. However, what we do know is that church has kind of been pushed to the fringe and the voice of the church has been silenced And that because we just really don't know how to engage in political conversations. We don't know how to engage in the political arena without going to one extreme, either trying to put a politician on the throne that belongs to God or just completely abdicating and acquiescing any influence that we should have. And so we want to know what does it look like to engage in the political... uh, cycle and political debate and political seasons, how do you do that where you can engage to bring hope? So that's number one. We want to engage so that we can be a church, that you can be a people that brings hope. A hey, second thing would be to equip people to be distinctive. Equip us to live distinctively. You know, the Bible says this, that the church's role is to equip um, the saints for the work of the ministry and one of our values is that we value equipping over entertaining we value equipping over entertaining, and so we think that we need to have a biblical perspective on, you know, what, we, what would Jesus say about some of the debates and the issues of our day, and so we want to be able to equip people to live out the faith that they have. You know, I was reading a quote by a historian this week um, by the name of Larry Hurtado. He wrote Destroyer of the Gods, and he said this. Speaking of just the bastion of influence that the early church was, he said this. He says, it wasn't the church's relevance or relatability to the culture that made it influential okay it wasn't the church's relevance or relatability to the culture but it's the difference and distinctiveness that made it compelling to so many hello it's the difference and distinctiveness and what has happened over the course of um years is that sometimes the church can be different in ways that really don't matter right like I can remember, one of the first churches I worked at, they, they they would kind of judge people based on what they wear. Do you remember that maybe as a kid? Like you had to come to church dressed a certain way. Stuff that really doesn't matter. But then also, we've gotten alike in some ways that really do matter. We've gotten some li- alike in some ways that really aren't good for us. We've gotten alike in some ways where we're not actually influencing with salt and light. Man, we we've gotten alike. You know, the divorce rate inside the church is the same as outside the church. You know that we have the same views of sex. There's just as many people having extramarital sex inside the church as outside the church. And so, so we've got some beliefs that we need to, you know, just bring some distinctiveness to. Because let me tell you, that's appealing to people. Man, when they begin to see the life and the hope that's offered through Christ, when they begin to see that the different way you live actually is better for you. Man, that's what's appealing. So we want to be able to equip to to understand the distinctiveness the, the distinctives that we have so that we can be the people of God that we want to be. And hey, if you're here today, you just figured it out. Spiritually unresolved I mean, don't know really what you believe about Jesus or, you know, maybe you, fell, you used to go to church, kind of fell out of church. I mean, this is going to be a great series for you to really understand what, what it means to follow Jesus, how it can make your life better, how it can bring you purpose and hope and how it really is the thing you should, you should orient your life around. Amen. All right, so let's grab our Bibles. Hope you have it. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 today. Uh, Mark chapter 12. Um, And so we're going to start out in verse 13. And so Mark was a guy that wrote some things about Jesus. Now, here's here's an interesting fact about the book of Mark. He's an eyewitness, right, to the life of Jesus. Mark was writing to a Roman audience. Okay, keep this in mind. Mark is writing to a Roman audience. He was writing to convince people, who didn't think like him, who didn't believe like him, who didn't have the same worldview, right? So so I feel like that's a little ironic for us today, but this is why Mark is writing. And so we see this is the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus is on his way to be executed, and so he gets asked this question. And so in verse 13, uh, it says this, it says that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So, so if that were in today's terms, it would be, it would read like this: He sent some of them, some of the Democrats and Republicans, to trap him in his talk. Like these people hated each other, right? They were on different sides. They believed different things. They had different agendas. Verse 14: It says they came and they said, "Then, teacher." We know that you are true and you don't care about anyone's opinion. Sounds like all the politicians that we know, doesn't it? They don't care about anybody's opinion. Uh, That was a joke. You should laugh. Um, For you are not swayed by appearances or polls, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So you see, Jesus gets, gets drawn into this political debate, right? This political debate. Now, here's what makes this so tense for Jesus. It's Passover. And so Passover was this season where they celebrated freedom. Now, what had happened is 2,000 years ago, the nation of Israel was in slavery to the nation of Egypt. And God sent Moses, maybe you remember some of this story, the prince of Egypt. God sent Moses to deliver them from Egypt into the promised land. And so they're celebrating this freedom that they have at Passover. It is the most important holiday on the Jewish calendar. I mean, it is Easter, that, like we would call it Easter. I mean, celebrating it. And so, what would happen so many times is thousands of people have gone in Jerusalem at this point to celebrate the Passover. And over the course of history, because they're celebrating freedom, many times revolts and uprisings would happen during this season because they're just trying to bring about that freedom again. And so the Roman government knew this. So the Roman government would have a show of force, and they would send extra soldiers into the city. They would be armed, and they would be walking around. And they would be checking on people. So you have this heightened tension of this potential revolution that could break out. But also you have the Roman government who's prepared for what may happen. And then we see Jesus is kind of thrown into the midst of this. It's it's his last few days of his life. And so he's he's facing this question, do you pay taxes to Caesar or do you not? And he's faced with a dilemma because this was the question that everybody was talking about. Do we pay this tax or not? Now, this tax actually was paid by the Jews to fund the Roman government to keep them in slavery. Figure that out. They're paying this tax to the Roman government to keep them in slavery. So if Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax, man, all the people that are following him are going to be like, what's this about? Man, we're out. If he says don't pay the tax, then the Roman, he's going to face the wrath of the Roman government, and so we, what we see Jesus is about to teach us. He teaches us we have the we have to have the courage to be kind, but the conviction to be true. We need the courage to be kind, but the conviction to be true. Watch what happens in verse 15. It says, but knowing their hypocrisy, they were trying to catch him in a problem. He said, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius. A denarius was the coin that they would have used for this particular tax. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, now, just a couple of lessons from the life of Jesus and how he handles this political question. The first thing we see is he examines the coin, right? He, he examines the coin. He's paying attention. Jesus wants us, he was, he wants us to be culturally informed. Right? Jesus wants us to be culturally informed. Like, how many people have you heard or read say something, and it's usually pretty dogmatic, but they haven't done the homework? Hello? Right? They really don't know what they're talking about. Like, maybe it's on Facebook, maybe it's on Instagram, maybe, maybe it was you. We just go on assumption, we go off of uh, what we hear on political commercials because they're all really accurate. You've noticed this? <laughs> And we're not really culturally informed about the issues that are happening. And I think what Jesus would say is we need to know what's going on. And we need to pay attention to the issues. We need to know the ones that really matter. We need to know the ones that, that, that we should care about. We need, to know, we need to know why we would vote a certain way. We need to know why we would think a certain way. But, but you know what else? We need to know why someone else would think a certain way. All right. Like we need to have conversations with people. We need to understand the other side of the aisle, as it were. Like Jesus understood both sides of what was happening. Man, there's just gonna be people that disagree with you, and they just take it so so seriously. I'll never forget when I learned this. It was a little later in life, in 2016, um, when Donald Trump won the election. I remember mo- all of us. We went to bed thinking that Hillary Clinton was gonna win, and we woke up and Donald Trump had won. You remember this? And I walked out to the. I was I was in Florida at the time visiting some friends. I voted beforehand, so don't worry. And so um, uh, I, I was in Florida, and so I was walking out to go jogging. And by the mailbox, there was an older lady, and she was riding her bike, and she stopped. And I said, "Hey, how we, how are you doing?" And she was like, she starts weeping. I'm like, "Did you know I was a pastor now, kid?" Um, she starts weeping. She says, "I'm just so afraid." Like a what? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm missing something here, right? And, and so sometimes people think things that you may not be aware of. Sometimes people, people uh, believe things that, that may be different from you. I, I do think one of the great shocks will be is when we get to heaven and there will be people who voted differently than we did from a different party who will be there. And you know, how, you know who else is going to be shocked? If they are because they think you're not going either. <laughs> You know, you know, the church has been built off different people. Man, we're the only organism that has stood the test of time. Man, it takes people who are rich and poor. Hello? It takes people who are addicted and find freedom. It takes marriages that are on the brink of di- divorce that find hope and healing. Man, man, it takes people who have a lot of influence or, or not a lot of influence. It takes people who are educated and not educated. It is built off of people who are wildly different. Man, and we can never forget that. We, we have to be culturally informed. I mean, the second thing Jesus does is he just finds some common ground. When he asks them, you know, the question about um, when he has them bring the coin to them, he, he just finds some, some common ground with him. And he's trying to disarm them a little bit. And, and I think that one of the things that happens to us is we think that, you know, there's set, you can't talk about politics in church because there's separation of church and state. Maybe you've heard that term before. Um, and, and the reality is we've just misunderstood and been misinformed about what that actually means. Um, I, I don't ever think that, a church should be about trying to get the right person elected because as soon as you put your faith in an elected official, they're going to show you why you shouldn't do that and you should only have faith in Jesus. Amen. And I'm not criticizing people's character because it's terrible. I'm just saying, no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm just saying that men are fallible and we can't put our hope in them to bring about what we want. Man, we've got a king. His name is Jesus and that's who we worship. And so, so what, what, what Jesus does is he finds some common ground. Throughout the Bible, we see uh, Christians and faith filled people involved in politics. How did Moses let the people of Israel go? He goes to what? The Pharaoh, who was what? A political leader. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, man, we see that he, he was high up in government and he was able to use his position in government to influence the king to do what? To follow God, right? This is the common ground. And there's some things that we can all do. I mean, we should all vote. We, sh- we should vote. We should know why we're voting. You know, even this year, I'm going to be gone on election day, but I went and voted on Friday. Let me tell you how to vote. See, that'd be stepping over the line right there, right? Um, but but we should vote. Another thing that the Bible teaches us is that we should pray for our leaders. Over in First Timothy, First uh, Timothy chapter First uh, Timothy chapter two. Let me see if I can find it here for y'all because I don't have it marked. First Timothy chapter two. Just looking down at verse 1, it says this. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. So so he, he covers a gamut of types of prayer for people. And then he says this. For kings, all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. So why are we praying for kings? Why aren't we praying for joe biden why are we praying for brian kipp why are we praying for peyton jameson white so because god desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth right and so we pray for people even though we may not have voted for them or believe in their policies man we, we need to pray for them like the bible commands us to do that man we have to find some common ground in there now um The the next thing that we see Jesus do is uh, Jesus elevates the conversation. Watch what happens in verse 16. It says this. It says, They brought him the coin, so they brought him one of the coins, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, It's Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God." And they marveled at him. And maybe you've heard this phrase, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Man, Jesus elevates the conversation. You see, what Jesus is trying to point out to us, he wants us to be kingdom-driven. Jesus wants to be kingdom-driven. Let me explain a little bit about this image. This is, this is fascinating what Jesus just did right here. So on this coin was the image of Tiberius Caesar. And, and, and the inscription on the front would have said something in um, Greek, but it would have said, you know, son of God on that. On the back would have been words that said high priest. And so on the front, you have this picture of the Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, the image, the icon is another word that's used for that. Now, you may remember in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And one of them is you you shall have no graven image. Maybe you remember this. You'll you'll, You'll make no idols, no image of me. And so what they've done is they've got this image that would have been abhorrent to any Jew. Like, like many Jews wouldn't even allow that coin in their presence. So Jesus asked them to produce one, even though he knows how bad it is for them to have to watch it. And what Jesus is trying to do is to point out this drastic difference. That, that on this coin you have this image that belongs to the government and in our hearts, based on how we're created, that we are created in the image of God. And so what Jesus is trying to show is that there's this drastic delineation between these two kingdoms, these two images, and that one supersedes the other. Come on. One kingdom supersedes the other. And what Jesus is saying is that God's kingdom, because his image is planted in our hearts, should supersede everything about our lives. It supersedes how we vote. It supersedes how we relate. It supersedes how we spend money. It supersedes everything. So in this moment, they marveled because they remembered exactly who was supposed to be in charge and the imprint that God had put on their heart, not on some coin that's going to burn up. He supersedes everything. Now, now, now he doesn't, he's not trying to draw this false distinction between God and government. And sometimes that's what's, uh, that's what's believed about this passage. The, that idea of this distinction between God and government actually didn't happen until the Enlightenment. I, talk, I talked about it a few weeks ago. And, and much to our detriment, right, right? Much to our detriment, it's inadequate at worst and devastating at best to try to separate the two. And that was never God's intention. He's just saying, my kingdom's better. Now, now the second thing it does, not mean is that we have to follow every single law that's on the books. I know some of you are thinking, thank God, because I was speeding, getting over here. I was late. <laughs> now, now, it does mean as far as we can, we follow laws. But, but when, when, when civil laws violate God's laws, we have one that we follow. And we follow God's laws. Now, we should probably work within systems to try to get laws changed. There's lots of different ways to have civil disobedience. I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying that you should go and resort to violence. I'm not not saying that at all. But I do think that we need to be so well-informed in our consciences and our souls that we know which laws may violate God's laws and which laws don't. See, Jesus elevates the conversation to talk about the real kingdom, to talk about his kingdom. Now, now a couple of things about this kingdom that I want to just point out. One thing that you may find shocking, the U.S. is not the center of the universe. Did you know this? If you've traveled anywhere, you know the U.S. is not the center of the universe. Now, now let me just say on the front end before I talk about the United States, it's an awesome country. Like, I've been to some other countries. I've been in some communist countries, socialist countries. I promise you this is better, okay? Um, I've been to places, and we got a lot of problems. Nobody would deny that. But th- this place, um, as far as a place to live, the freedom that we have, you know what I'm not worried about right now? I'm not worried about the Milton PD coming in and shutting me down. Yeah. right? I've got freedom to speak. I've got, we've got freedom to worship. Um, I mean, we, we just have so much freedom, we have no context for it. So let me just preface by saying that. But the United States is not the center of the universe, much like we were taught when we were kids. Like, I don't, I don't know how many of you are as old as I, but I can remember going to middle school and our, um, uh, our, our school was a bomb shelter during the Cold War. You may remember this. It had the radioactive sign on the wall, you know, um, as if it wasn't going to liquefy everything within a thousand miles of us if a bomb hit. But, you know, we felt safe. And I know exactly where I was when Ivan Drago killed Apollo Creed, don't you? You remember that? And of course, what did we do? We sicked Rocky on them. Man, and we didn't do steroids like they did. We put on our flag pants and we worked out in Siberia out in the cold. Why? America, that's why. <laughs> I know right where I was when Maverick inverted over that MiG, and Goose took that Polaroid of that MIG flying, and then they bugged out because they were so afraid. Don't you remember that? And then the sequel. And it's a spoiler alert, but we win that one too. I mean, I know right where I was. Man, man, you know, America, it's a great country, but the reality is Rome lasted 1,500 years. We're we're not even 250 years in. There's some cracks in the foundation. And so so we need to remember where where our loyalty lies. As awesome as the United States is, hymns, are our patriotic songs. The pastor can become the president. Our sermons can become his speeches. Our taxes are the new tithes. Benedict Arnold is the new Judas. Revolution is the new Exodus. The Constitution becomes the Bible, and Lincoln becomes the new Moses. That's what can happen if we're not careful and remember Jesus is our king. And there's one kingdom that we serve and live in. This is the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the king that we have. Now, how do we, how do, we do that? I just want to talk about two ways that we can do that as people, as a church, um, to live in God's kingdom even while we live in this kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching and he says this in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Right? We're, salt is good for what? It's good for flavor. It's good for preservative. If you've ever eaten anything and you thought to yourself, that needs salt, like you know it's missing, don't you? And in a society, what Christians are able to do is to become salt. Man, we're able to add value. We're able to lift people up. We're able to show people a new way to live. We're able to season it whenever it needs to be seasoned. This is the role of a Christian in society and in culture, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families. Man, where to be salt for people? Man, how are you salt? Like if you looked at your last week, man, where were you salt? I'm not talking about salty language, guys, right? I'm talking about where were you salt? Where did you add value? Where did you nourish life? Where did you help people? Where did you lean in? Man, where did you get out of your comfort zone? Man, how are you being salt? Saw. This is the role of people who follow Jesus and live in the kingdom of heaven. The second part of that, that passage in verse 14, Jesus says this, is You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I mean, our primary weapon to spread God's goodness is our light. You remember it? This little light of mine. You remember that? I'm gonna let it shine. Sometimes mom was right. Yeah. Sometimes mom was right. And and, the, and we 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 can abdicate our role because like I don't want to be offensive. Man, I don't want to be. I don't be. I don't want to demonize people. You don't have to be abrasive. Like we don't have to be abrasive in our conversation. We don't have to be hateful in our conversation. Man, we don't have to po- be polarizing in our conversation. That's not what light does. That's not what salt does. And this is what we're we're called to be. A few years ago, we were in um we were in Scotland doing some church planting work, and Debbie and I were at a restaurant, and we kind of pride ourselves on uh, Appearing like we're from uh, Eastern Europe when we're abroad, you know, like that. Um, and so, uh, but this one couple was sitting next to us, and they just asked us, "Hey, are you from the United States?" So, "Yeah, we are." And of course, immediately they went to, "What do you think about Donald Trump?" I'm like, "Like, what's going on here?" And uh, I'm like, "I don't know. What do you think about Donald Trump?" And of course, they love Donald Trump. Uh, this particular couple. And so then my wife kind of. Got the point, and she turns to me and says, you know, it doesn't really matter who the president is. He's not really in control. We really believe that God's in control. And she used that as a political conversation to bridge into a spiritual conversation. And that's how we should live. That's the kind of conversations that we should have. Now, Now, there's several different things that the church has brought to the world throughout history and I just want to point out some of those as we are salt and light number one is just a vision of the dignity of all people okay vision for the dignity of all people let me ask this question I'm sorry I'm going to back up just a second hey where is your light shining I want to be sure you write that down we'll ask that again at the end but be sure you grab that question so, so the church would bring a vision for the dignity of all people. So just one, one particular category um, is the category of women. Now, in the Roman world, women were devalued. They were seen as property. They couldn't vote, and they couldn't witness in a public court of law. And so there was this subhuman treatment of women. Nobody has done more for the value of women than Jesus did. And as we look at the early church and how they valued women and elevated the role of women in the church, in society, in family, in culture, we see that this is what the church does across the board, that they raise the value of people no matter where you come from, no matter um, who your parents were, no matter the mistakes and the sins that you've committed, right? No matter what, like the church has elevated the dignity of all people, and this is the kind of people that we should be. And we should elevate the dignity of all people and nourish life wherever we go. You know, another another aspect of what Christians brought was care for the poor. Care for the poor. Like in the Roman society, there's no safety net. Nobody took care of people who were poor. Nobody cared about um, people who couldn't take care of themselves. That's why you read so many stories in the Bible about someone who was begging. And Christians came along especially during the the, um, historical time of the plagues, when under one plague, a third of the world's population died. Can you imagine 2 billion people dying? And the Roman authorities, the Roman aristocracy, the doctors, the professionals, they all left the cities and ran to the country for their safety. But the Christians stayed. They nursed people back to health. Man, they helped families bury their dead. And this is what was said of Christians in those times. See how they love. That was the witness of Christians when they cared for the poor. I Man, they had to value the dignity of people They cared for the poor. I Man, they were just resolute in their vision for marriage and sex. I Man, they really believed in the book of Genesis when God creates marriage and God creates sex that this was the best way to live. And I'm going to talk about that in a few in, in about two more weeks, three weeks from today, I think. I'll talk on that one uh, a, little, a lot more in depth. Um, they were also suspicious of human nature in a good way. This helped implement a sense of checks and balances. You know, when we just believe that everybody's doing the right thing and that everybody's good, man, we just begin to fall prey to people who don't. And so they had this belief that God would transform your life, that God wanted you to be new. But there also should be this ongoing repentance and turning away from things of this world and turning towards God. And So they brought that into the public sphere. Now, there's also, they believed in the power and the favor of God. Listen, when, when you have people who follow God and want to do what God wants them to do, it's a game changer in countries. You know, one of the visions for Compassion International, one of our partners, is that they would not only release kids from poverty, but they would get them trained up so that they could take positions in government, whether elected or not, and and be influential at forming public policy. Why? Because they know this is the source of change. Man, that people are the source of change. Changed hearts are the source of change. This is what it means, the power and the favor of God. And then this last one and then I'll, I'm going to just dive into this for a little bit um, they had this active resistance to infanticide and abortion. They had an active resistance to infanticide and abortion. In Roman culture, it wasn't uncommon for someone to have a baby that they didn't want, whether maybe some physical problem, or maybe if it was a little girl, if they didn't want, they could take it and leave it in the street, or leave him or her in the street, or take it and leave him or her uh, at, at the dump. And this was how the Roman government operated. And so um, they just brought this value even of children. And so now let me wade into um, this this issue of abortion. Now now before I get into this, let me just say that based on people that I know, in our church, outside our church, based on statistics, and some of you are struggling with this, You've got some guilt and some shame. Um, you've got some regret. You've got sadness. You've got grief. You know, and, and the emotions are going to be high. And I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm just sorry. And I'm sorry you've had to go through this, but I hope that these next few minutes can be the most redemptive minutes in your life. Okay? Man, I believe God loves you, and he's got such compassion for you he's got such forgiveness. But, and, and maybe you know someone that's been through this. Maybe it was a sister that got pregnant when she was in high school. Or maybe it was a friend. I mean, we, we're impacted by this on a certain level. But as I began to think about that this week, I would never want anybody that went to our church to not understand what the Bible said about it. That when you stand before the Lord, that you would know what the Bible said about it. So what I want to do is I just want to kind of paint a biblical picture on the issue of abortion. I want to paint a little bit of a cultural picture, and then bring some, and then bring um, answer a few of the misconceptions that are out there right now when it comes to this. So just as we look at the Bible, I just want to, I just a handful of scripture to kind of bring some parameters around this. It says, on you I was cast from birth, from my birth. This is Psalm 22. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Now in that verse, something that we have got to understand. Three people in that verse. Throw it back up there for me just a second, just on this one. Psalm 22. You'll notice God's in that verse. You'll notice a baby's in that verse. Who else is in that verse? A mom's in that verse. And so many times what can happen in this debate and, man, in the heated political climate that we're in, moms get forgotten. And dads get forgotten. and So we can never do that. This is very important. And there's got to be compassion and care and love and mercy and grace. Man, there's moms in this verse. And the psalmist says, I was cast from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. So I've been worshiping you since... Since what? Since before I was physically born. Psalm 139 says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Like God's idea for you didn't start on your birthday. It's way before that. God put you together. The reason you have the hair color you have, the eye color you have, the reason you're as tall as you are or as short as you are, all those things, God did that. Your personality If you're an extrovert or an introvert, man, if you're a thinker or a feeler, if you're an Enneagram 3 or an 8, 7, like, God did that. He weaved you together is what this is saying. This is what historic Christianity believes. This is what the Bible's teaching us. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Like, before you were born, God already had your life planned out. He knew you'd be living where you live. He knew you'd be married or not married. He knew if you have kids or not have kids, he knew what job you'd have. Everything, God had ordained that for you, for your good. Isaiah 49.5 says this, And the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant. The Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant. Man, God forms you so you serve him. God forms you to bring him glory. God forms you to worship him. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. Man, God has set you apart for a specific purpose. It gives you value and dignity, and it gives everybody that we know value and dignity. Galatians 1.15 says, God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. God set you apart and called you because of his grace. Isaiah 49 one says this, listen to me, O coastlands, give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. There it is again. He named me by name, like God has a name for you. And he names you like before you were even born. Now for Debbie and I, this is not just a theoretical conversation. Uh, As I've shared before, uh, when our second child, when she was pregnant with our second child, she ran into some complications, and it looked like um, that there may be some decisions that had to be made. And the doctor set us down and told us what our options would be, that if God didn't intervene, that Debbie could potentially lose her life. This isn't theoretical for me. As a matter of fact, my wife's adopted. So, you know... this isn't something that I'm just going to read you some verses and, you know, drop the hammer on you and then walk away. Man, this is deeply personal for me. Probably uh, explains some of the, the emotion. But God, man, God's a God of life. Think about this. Jesus came as what? Came as a baby. You ever think about that? When, when, the, when um, Egypt wanted to stop Israel from becoming so powerful, what'd they do? They killed all the firstborn. When Jesus was born and the wise men came to see him, they alerted the king named Herod. Herod didn't want this new king, Jesus, to take over his throne. So what did Herod do? He killed all the babies, two and under. Man, it's not just a biblical issue. It's a warfare issue. Man, Satan is at work in this, okay? Now, all these verses... The reason, one of the things that you conclude from all of them is that life begins at conception. I mean, technically it's before that because it says when God thought of us. But but one of the things that we need to know is that this is not, life beginning at conception is not just for for people who go to church. Scientists believe this. Medical professionals believe this. This is pretty common understanding. And one of the things, One of the pieces of misinformation that may be out there is that there's a group of people who don't believe life begins at conception, a group of people who do. Nah, pretty much everybody does. The decision just comes down to the circumstances of the mom. That's that's how this plays out. And I feel like I need to take it just one step further, just for clarity's sake, and not to be cruel, but just to be clear. If life begins at conception and that life is terminated, that is killing. And so that's, that feels a little harsh, and I won't even say that again because it can be so, um, man, it can be so, uh, like, shocking to the system. But I think that we, we just need to realize this because it's that devastating for people. Now, if you look at kind of the impact of this in the United States, if you just went back to Roe v. Wade, um, you know, there's been 63 million abortions since Roe v. Wade. That's more than the total number of casualties in every American war. Two thousand five hundred forty-eight abortions per day is what—that's the current rate right now. So this is this is significant—a significant, devastating problem. It's devastating for children. It's devastating for moms. It's devastating for dads. Um, Don't don't be distracted by some of the political rhetoric. Let me just give you some common misconceptions. Um, abortion is legal in the state of Georgia. Life Act was passed in, Ju- in July. Five, five reasons, and you should know these. Number one is um, ab- abortion is, legal, is illegal once a heartbeat's been detected. OK? I know there seems to be debate about what exactly that is, too. Um, but abortion is illegal after a heartbeat has been detected. Um, abortion is allowed: rape, incest, mother of the uh, life of the mother. And also if abnormalities mean that the baby wouldn't be able to sustain life. So those are the five um, criteria where the, it would be allowed. One that I heard that I, um, that I think I want to bring some clarity to is you know, there's com- some commercials about people who um, say, so if I have a miscarriage, I'll be arrested. Not true. Okay? Not true. There's no law anywhere on the books Anyone who has an abortion will be arrested. It's the doctors that will be arrested, not the moms. Now, there is a couple in process proposed, but I have to believe that those are the extremes. I have to believe that those are the extremes. So if that's a concern, it should not be a concern. Here's another one. Do you know that an unwanted pregnancy is not a sin? Think about this. The sin is actually having sex outside of marriage. It's not unwanted pregnancy. But there's a lot of shame that goes with that because that's when it shows up. Again, if this is you and you need some help, man, we want to give you some help. I'm going to throw an organization up on the screen, Beacon of Hope. Um, I spoke with their CEO this week. um, And if you would need some counseling or help or you want to volunteer or help out, this would be a great place for you to start. And if... We would love to be able to help as well. Man, we always have someone in the back to pray, and we would love to be able to do that. I just want you to know there's so much grace and so much compassion from our Lord. Man, so much that we can't even begin, we can't even begin to understand it. But I think that we have to understand the issues at hand so we can know how to have a biblical response to care for people but also so we, we don't just bury our heads in the sand and get before the Lord and he asks about it. It's like, yeah, you know, I knew that was a problem, but I just wasn't really paying attention. Let them do their thing. So we need to be informed. So hopefully that's been helpful for you to be informed if a little bit challenging and maybe even a little bit blunt to the senses at times. What I'd like to do now is just point out man, the hope that we have, talk a little bit, as we close today, about the kingdom and the king that we serve. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, we're waiting for Jesus to call us home. We believe that there's a Savior who loves us, who's establishing a kingdom that will last forever and ever that there will be that time when we get to go and we meet with him and we're reunited with him and we'll look like him and we understand more about him. Colossians, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, there's times when you do what's right and what God wants you to do, and you're going to face criticism and you may face some persecution. But it says, guess what? Yours is what? It's the kingdom of heaven. You engage the kingdom of heaven. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Man, we are no longer walking dark, but we walk in light because Jesus has given us the light of the world. Daniel chapter 2 says this, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And his kingdom's gonna stand forever. Man, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. Ah, but there's something about that name. Revelation 21. Oh, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Don't you love this? The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear, and I got a lot of them. And death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning. No crying nor pain for the former things that passed away. Philippians chapter 2 says God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every single name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father Hebrews chapter 12 therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all. Man, there's a king coming for us. Man, he wants his rule and reign to start now. And he wants it to be his people being salt and light. And we can't be salt and light if we're sitting on the sidelines. Can I tell you about that, king? I'm going to. Man, there's a God. He's so good. And even though we don't see it, and if you were watching political commercials, you'd never believe it. God actually is real. And if you did, you'd think he's really angry at somebody. Man, but there's a problem, and we've sinned. And we've all sinned. Like, I don't know what your sin is, and you may feel like it's worse than mine, but you know what? It's not. Man, Jesus came, and we know that we sin. Man, there is a problem. It has separated us from God. Man, it brings guilt and shame. It brings consequences. It breaks everything. It breaks relationships. It breaks families. It breaks governments. It breaks communities. This is the the destruction of sin. Man, but there is hope. Man, his name is Jesus. And listen, Jesus promises us that no matter what, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter if you feel like you've crossed over the proverbial line, the one thing that you can't do, Jesus offers forgiveness. At every single turn in the Bible, Jesus offers forgiveness. And it's available today. Man, it is available today. That's the hope that we have. But there's only one solution, man. Our response to that, just to give our life, to live for his kingdom, put his kingdom above every kingdom. Everything in our lives that we would give a voice and a decision, we just put it subject to God. He supersedes everything. Man, that's our king. Man, that's the king that we serve, and this is the kingdom that we live in. Let's pray together.